Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics, and ending the stigma through educational discussions. The Vine podcast does not offer medical advice nor condone any use of illegal substances. Consult your physician or therapist before making any changes to your wellness plan and before trying alternative healing medicines. Today, we welcome Mark Gunther, a veteran journalist and speaker who's worked as a TV critic and media writer covering the entertainment and media industry and the social and environmental impact of business for Fortune, Green Biz, and The Guardian. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Fox, The Chronicle of Philanthropy, Stanford Social Innovative Review, and Yale Environment 360. He's written and co-authored amazing books spanning a wide range of topics. Now Mark covers philanthropy, psychedelics, animal warfare, and global poverty. He's a marathon runner, a Washington Nationals fan, and a lover of the outdoors. We're so happy to welcome Mark Gunther to The Vine. Thank you, Gina. I'm happy to be here, and I'm glad you mentioned my beloved Nationals, although I was there twice this week, and they lost both times. I'll try and cheer myself up right now. So welcome, Mark. It's so great to have you on, and you're truly a Renaissance man. Um, and we typically start off saying uh, or asking our guests, how did you get involved in plant medicine? But for you, we'd like to know how you got started writing about psychedelics. Yeah, that started about two or three years ago only, so I'm quite new to this field. Uh, I was writing about philanthropy for the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which is a trade publication covering foundations and nonprofits. And actually, it was through Tim Ferriss's podcast that I learned about some of the research going on in psychedelic medicines. And as you probably know, there's very little government money for that research. There's no interest from the drug industry so far, at least the established drug industry. More recently, there have been a bunch of startups in the field, but essentially the only support for research into psychedelic medicines was coming through philanthropy. So I did quite a long piece for the Chronicle about who are the people supporting this research because from both Tim's original podcast and my own reading, I could see very quickly the tremendous potential that psychedelic medicines have to to alleviate people's suffering and, and shockingly in a way from a wide, wide range of ailments. So the moment I dug into that story and I live in Bethesda, Maryland outside of DC, so I'm only a short ride from Johns Hopkins, which is one of the research centers, I had a chance to travel up there and spend some time with the uh, founder or the leader of that research center, Roland Griffiths, and then I got access to some of the other philanthropists in the field. Um, and I thought, wow, this is a fascinating story that deserves more attention. I guess I should say the other thing besides Tim's podcast that put me onto it was Michael Pollan's really important book of several years ago, How to Change Your Mind. So I give the two of them huge credit for putting this whole field on the map. And it certainly is on the map and in a very, <laughs> very big way. I feel like, you know, there's, it's, it just seems like so many articles each day are coming out talking about, you know, this kind of renaissance that's happening around psychedelics. And, you know, Elizabeth and I were very excited to get to meet you this spring um, at a special higher medicine group ceremony 
you know, it, uh, it truly was a magical day and I feel so grateful to have even been included in it. Um, and I'm hoping that you can maybe share your experience, um, of this, uh, you know, from your perspective, I'm curious, you know, if this was your first group experience and if you had any memorable moments to share. Yeah. So I'd been writing about psychedelics for about two years at that point. Um, my only personal experience with the drugs had come as a college student and that's a long, long time ago. And they weren't great experiences, to be honest. I had a sort of unsettling experience with what was supposed to be LSD. I don't really know exactly what it was, but I was 20 years old and actually, uh, won't get into the whole story other than to say it required a trip to the police station at a certain point. So it was a little scary. But anyway, by the time of last spring and before, I had done a lot of reading, got very interested in MDMA, particularly because of the long uh, research that MAPS has done into that. Um, uh, by then, I had written a very long piece about Rick Doblin and MAPS for this publication called Stanford Social Innovation Review, which is a kind of dry, almost academic publication, but they gave me the time and space to do a lot of reading on the topic. And that seemed like a good entry point. I mean, I don't want to keep writing about these drugs only from an outsider's perspective. I want to find safe ways to explore them myself and to, to hopefully use them to, to grapple with some of the issues I'm dealing with in my life, a certain stage of life, uh, which is sort of moving from full-time, hardworking, driving reporter to sort of hardworking, not full-time, not so driving reporter who also wants to go to ball games and spend time with his grandchildren and exercise when he feels like it. But that's a challenging transition. So I was invited to the gathering where we all met, and uh, it was a great experience. It really was. I don't want to say it was life-changing because it, it hasn't been yet, but it was a super special day. Um, I had not tried ecstasy or MDMA before. I'm certainly eager to, to try it again, having done it once. And I guess the way I would describe it is very relaxing outdoor day. It made me very present oriented in a way that I think meditation aims to do in a way that I think it's good for all of us to be. So for the space of that day, anything that I had been worried about from the previous days or anxious about for the future days disappeared. So very much in the moment and generally feeling a kind of um, warmth and it's hard to talk about these things without sounding cliched, but a kind of non-sexual love for the people around you and humanity in general sense of gratitude. I felt like it just pulled out the parts of my personality that I feel best about and let go or help me to let go of some of the parts of me that I would like to let go of. So it was an entirely, entirely positive experience. Uh, I, I feel the same. I, I second that. I have had uh, many experiences with MDMA, but as an adult, not so many and not in ceremony. And I, it really made a difference, I thought, to be in ceremony. So 
if we dive into your article, could MDMA become one of the greatest drugs ever? Um, (laughs) Obviously, you did a lot of research with that. And I mean, that's a pretty amazing title. So what is it that you found that makes you believe that perhaps this is one of the greatest drugs of our time? So we obviously have a lot still to learn. I mean, the amount of scientific research going on is still, you know, reasonably small because, again, there's not the money to finance it. There just isn't. There's essentially zero or close to zero money from NIH to do this work. Uh, Fortunately, there are a bunch of drug startups that are starting to research psychedelics, but I have to be uh, very skeptical as I look at what some of them are doing. Some of them may be in a hurry, um, and you can't be in a hurry with these drugs. So uh, the, the sort of blue sky scenario for MDMA, I think, is this. First, it's probably the best, if, if we call it a psychedelic, I don't, I don't care about what the definition is exactly, but it's probably the best of the psychedelic or psychedelic-like drugs to use in a medical setting because it takes place in a manageable amount of time. So you do want to work with it medically in a supervised way. It's not eight or 10 hours. I think you could manage it to sort of half a day or six hours. So that's very good, both for research and treatment. Um, It seems to go in a medical setting to the question of trauma. And I think there's an interesting theory that trauma may be behind a lot of what we think of as mental illness, Uh, people with depression, people with anxiety in particular, but also people with addictions may at heart be dealing with trauma. So the great success that MAPS has had, and this, this is deeply researched now, using MDMA to Uh, treat PTSD, MDMA, again, with therapy, not on its own. None of these are miracle drugs. Um, That's data point number one. A very small study that uh, took place fairly recently in the UK seems to have done very well at indications of MDMA and alcohol use disorder. Um, So if we start to see the drug We know the drug is safe. It's been tested a gazillion times. The risks of MDMA, as I best understand it, are if you buy it on the street, it may not be MDMA. So that's one risk you got to be really careful of. And apparently there's a risk of dehydration. So that's easily mitigated. But if you're dealing with the drug that is MDMA and you stay hydrated, there seems to be close to zero risks for most people. Um, So if you have something with very low risk and efficacy that could potentially expand across a variety of ailments, potentially, then you're talking about things like addictions, depression, anxiety. At least you see a road there where it might be very useful. And then the next thing to say about it is as a Uh, you know, I know people don't like the word recreational, but as a drug used for people to help understand themselves and others better to explore their consciousness, it seems to have great potential there as well. And so that's why I say both in the medical arena, 
but also in the decriminalized um, public explore your mind world, it, it seems like there's almost unlimited potential there. But I don't, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We don't know enough yet. And I'm also personally uh, very interested in exploring with some of the other psychedelics as well to see what they're like. I just think drugs like psilocybin or LSD and full doses are not going to be as easy to use in a medical setting, even though psilocybin has worked pretty well at Johns Hopkins. And that that's what they're working with. It's just super expensive to, to sit with people through three eight-hour trips and have lots of sessions of therapy before and after. Uh, just a quick question on that, because I was reading today about a, a pharmaceutical that is, you know, creating a synthesized psilocybin, and it just noted that it was very expensive to produce. So is it indeed expensive to produce that synthesized drug, or is it because of all the therapy and everything that goes around it that a drug company makes that kind of statement? So I don't know that the drug is that expensive to produce. I've actually, from little reporting that I've done, heard the opposite. I know that's true with MDMA because MAPS basically bought like 20 years worth of MDMA for all their research for $4,000, believe it or not, from a, wow. from a Purdue chemist named David Nichols who had a license to produce drug for research purposes. Now, wasn't medical grade MDMA, but it was pure MDMA. They're paying a lot more now. Um, another story I sort of have on my agenda is to look at the one company, I believe, that dominates the market for psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA. It's a British company, and they're selling to everybody, and probably there should be some attention paid so there's more than one supplier because then the prices for the research could go up. You got you. You want to have some competition, um, but as far as I've heard, I don't think that's a huge issue. I think the issue is just the length of the sessions with psilocybin and the costs of the therapy, and that's going to be an issue with with any of the psychedelic medicines because I, I haven't heard anyone say that just take the pill and your problems go away. It's it's right. they enable they enable all kinds of other work to go on. But I'll just give you one other quick story about bringing costs down, again, right near where Elizabeth and I live in Rockville, Maryland, there is a cancer center that has permission to use, I think it's psilocybin, but I don't know for sure. It was either psilocybin or MDMA with cancer patients in late stages of cancer and their families, and they are going to try and do group sessions. So again, if you can do something with two therapists and six people in the room rather than two therapists and one patient or client in the room, you can see right away the the medical, the costs come down pretty dramatically. So people are, well, you know, I have to say, I've been so impressed by the scientists I've talked to working on these drugs. They are very thoughtful, mm -hmm. you know, not just about their experiment, but about how eventually to scale up the availability. Can you imagine a better you? Empathic Health is a global community providing support so you can find more fun, freedom, and connection in your life. Empathic Health is my integration solution for incorporating my healing work into my daily routine. Empathic Health has given me a space to use my voice to express my thoughts and be myself in a safe place. 
I'm excited to get to the type of work that gives my life more clarity and joy. Helping others has done nothing but help me in return. Know your medicine, know yourself. Join Elizabeth, myself, and the rest of the community today at empathic.health. Maybe this could be the way that the medical community can work with others that want to be involved in in the psychedelic space, like trip sitters and various different, you know, folks that want to hold space and help with integration. Because I feel like, you know, there could only be so much that the medical community can do, like if this would be covered under insurance someday, let's say, and it might only include a couple sessions with the medical doctor, but that the community can lend itself for group integration circles and sessions and, you know, having like other, you know, community that's willing to support one another. I think that that might be a way where, you know, both the medical side can work with kind of what now is being seen as kind of like the underground movement and how can these two worlds collide? And I'm, I'm curious if there'll be a way that we can, you know, intertwine them. Yeah, that's a great point, Gina. One of the issues that MAPS has had with FDA and generally speaking, um, they've been very happy at MAPS with the cooperation and work they've done with FDA, but they ended up having a conflict over who needed to be in the room during the therapy sessions and whether you needed to have a physician on site or on call. Again, we're dealing with a drug where the safety profile is very good. So MAPS hired lawyers and spent a lot of money and in a sense had a battle with the FDA over whether a physician would have to be present and MAPS prevailed, fortunately. So again, that's an, that's an effort to bring it down. And th- then the question also is what credentials do you need for people in the room itself during the trip? And again, MAPS wants, understandably, wants someone who's trained, but not mm-hmm. overtrained because overtraining is just going to going to raise the costs. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we, we generally, unfortunately tend to, you know, have a lot of licenses in our society that, um, raise the costs of all kinds of things that aren't necessarily, I think, you know, manicurists need licenses in some States. So, you know, my, uh, my daughter can do can give a manicure to her daughter, so I don't know yeah. why you need a license to do a <laughs> <Right>. manicure. <laughs> well, we see this in the we see this in the cannabis space too. I mean, you know, you have right. to have so much money to be able to have a license to grow it. Yet there are so many people that if they had access to be able to get a micro grow license in their state, could absolutely become a part of the industry. But because they don't have the big money, and so I think there's a lot that the psychedelic space, you know, could learn from some of the mistakes that have happened within cannabis and and some of the things that have done well. Um, And, you know, with you specifically interviewing so many leaders and innovators in the plant medicine space, you know, we've talked a bit about Rick Doblin and MAPS, but is there anyone else that you really feel is doing outstanding work? Um, And if so, like, what are they working on that has really caught your eye? Um, Yeah, Rick is really the the kind of most admirable leader, I think, in the space, Mm -hmm. if only because he's been at it since he was basically a teenager. He was one of those rare people who probably before his 20th birthday knew what he wanted to do and then devoted his life to it and is still going at it very strong. He's in his late 60s or mid to late 60s now. Um, Other people I admire either in the arena or near would be Roland Griffiths, who's running the center at Johns Hopkins. Again, a very distinguished scientist, had a long career actually studying caffeine before getting interest in this, 
uh, a quite experienced meditator. He's just the, a great voice for psychedelic medicines because of his age and the respect he's accorded. And he's, you know, not a hippie. Um, you know, I do think science is really important here. I mean, I, I worry a little bit about the claims, despite my clickbait headline of MDMA is the greatest drug ever, um, there are a lot of there's a lot of hype uh, around psychedelics, and I think we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. So, people like Roland Griffiths is very good. There's another guy named Bill Richards, and maybe I'm partial to all these old dudes because I'm an old <laughs> dude. But he actually was a researcher. He was a researcher before. You know, back in the days of Timothy Leary, he worked at a hospital in Maryland that was doing psychedelic research, um, went off and did all kinds of other things. And now he's back at Johns Hopkins as kind of a senior fellow researcher there. His son is in the field as well. Um, so he's been working on this for, for 40 or 50 years. So those are some of the names to come to mind. But I, again, I have to give huge credit to Michael Pollan. Huge credit to Tim Ferriss, who's popularized this and raised a lot of money on his own. Um, although he's uh, a bit uh, of an odd duck, I want to give a lot of credit to David Bronner of Dr. Bronner's. Everyone go out and support Dr. Bronner's soap because they do great philanthropic work around not just psychedelics, but but other wonderful causes. And he's a very experienced user of psychedelics. And I think his philanthropy uh, was crucial, for example, to the effort in Oregon. There, really, there were two efforts in Oregon. One was to decriminalize all drugs, which is radical and wonderful, and it passed. And then there was a second ballot initiative to create a structure for medicalized psilocybin clinics so Oregon is going to be a model for the country in terms of figuring out how to administer these drugs in a medical setting and in a safe way with proper screening. I guess the other thing we probably should just say on this podcast, I know we're not giving any medical advice, but these drugs aren't necessarily for everyone. And um, people do need to be screened before taking it. There are some conditions that would mean either that the drugs don't work or that the drugs might react badly with something else you're taking. So that, that can't be emphasized enough. But um, again, Oregon may figure out how to, how to do this despite all these drugs still being schedule one, you know, on the national level, in a way somewhat similar to what's happened with cannabis. That, that's not a story I've covered, but it, it feels to me like the medical model paved the way for the much broader acceptance that we're seeing now. So just to, to piggyback on that, um, we often talk about the senior high, meaning again, <laughs> adults 55 and older who are discovering these substances or maybe rediscovering these substances um, and sort of the medicinal qualities that we're all finding and um, just what wondering what you've learned about this phenomenon through your research. So I th what I've learned is there is a gap between people's anecdotes and the science. So, 
you hear a lot about the benefits of a lot of psychedelic drugs. And I think for that matter, cannabis as well. And I would say they are all still quite under-researched. I mean, I don't know that, again, cannabis isn't my arena. You would know more than I. But my impression is there has not been a lot of real rigorous scientific research into the benefits of cannabis. It wasn't permitted for a long time. It hasn't been particularly well-funded. And the same is true for, again, self-administration of psychedelics. Uh, I don't know. Oh, I do. I was going to say, I don't know anyone who microdoses. I know one person who microdoses. Um, Not surprisingly, he's living in California. I read that there's a lot of microdosing going on, particularly in Silicon Valley. But another story on my to-do list is what do we really know about the benefits of microdosing? And I think the answer is actually almost nothing. I mean, there's been almost no scientific studies done. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It doesn't mean it's dangerous. It's just we don't know. And, and the other one other surprising thing that I've kind of learned from doing the reporting, particularly the first round of reporting around the philanthropists and the medical research is there seems to be very little understanding of actually how these drugs work, what they're doing in your brain. You know, there's some diagrams in Michael Pollan's book, but um, I don't think even some of the brain scientists out there know what's going on. And maybe once they discover what the term they use is the mechanism of action, that will enable all kinds of scientific leaps to to jump forward. Maybe we could create a synthetic psilocybin or LSD where the trip would be much more, um, you know, compact in terms of time. So it was only a 90 minute trip and it still provided some of the benefits. I think we're probably at a really early stage of both understanding and using these drugs. All right. So, so the, the seniors out there that are uh, experimenting just to, to find maybe a, some relief, uh, a better sense of well-being, um, you're right. A lot of it is anecdotal. Gina and I have talked to a company that is working on another synthetic psilocybin that will go through the blood-brain barrier or whatever mm. that is that you know, so that it, it doesn't go through your liver. And um, so we're hearing all these different kinds of things. Um, but you're saying that it's just, it's just really, we're in the infant stages. Certainly in terms of our understanding, we're at a really early stage. Um, you know, in general, I think our understanding of the brain still is so primitive compared to you know, my brother's having hip replacement surgery next week. I think they know what they're doing when it's hip replacement surgery. But when people have, you know, severe depression, I think they just throw a bunch of drugs at them. I'm just not, I'm not saying this critically. I'm saying we just don't know and see what sticks and try this, try that, try something mm-hmm. else. And um, you're, you're, it's trial and error. It's not real uh, treatment. So certainly that's true for psychedelics as well. 
that that's not to say that in a safe way people shouldn't do trial and error of their own kind you know assuming safety is paramount but what i'm saying is the science is still pretty early the fmri machines that are used to analyze how the brain works i i don't know i'm thinking they're no more than 15 or 20 years you know around so it, it you know we've been around for many many thousands of years so this is really new stuff Millions Ancient of years, technologies with some of the psilocybin stuff, right? Like yeah, new, uh, new to the research of it, and like I love reading that. Your that's piece a great point, Gina. Sustainability. Go ahead, sorry. No, yeah. I mean, I just when I I'm just trying to figure out, you know, because just you know the um, fantastic fungi is on Netflix, guys. So if you haven't seen awesome. that yet, it's on there, and I feel like this is going to show people it's that that the world of psychedelics you know, can really remind us how connected we are to not only one another, but also to mother nature. And, you know, I've loved reading your pieces on sustainability. And I'm wondering, like, what you may feel from throughout your years of researching and writing on the topic that you see as kind of the biggest problem um, that we suffer as as kind of humans on this planet and, and what efforts we need to be to make to live in a more sustainable world. Like, what can we really do? And can, is there a role that psychedelics could play in that? Yeah, that's a I mean, that's a really interesting question, which is I am very, I'm Westerner, like you all are. We're very biased to the Western uh, science and the tools of science, but we can learn from uh, other cultures and other times. And I guess the way I see a connection between environmental sustainability and psychedelics is most things that have most practices that have been around for a really long time stick around for a reason, right? So, I mean, whatever your views are on religion, to pick one example, it's been around for thousands of years. If it wasn't delivering some real benefit to people, I don't think it would have stuck around. And I think that is maybe the best evidence for the potential of psychedelics as well. They have been around for a long, long time. Almost every culture has been interested in them at one time or another. Um, that's got to be because they have some value. I'm just halfway through reading a sort of dry but also really interesting book called Drunk. It's right here beside me. The, the subtitle is How We Sipped danced and stumbled our way to civilization. It's essentially a book about the benefits of alcohol through the ages, how people used it to build trust, how they used it to loosen up their prefrontal cortex and become more creative. Um, And again, societies have been drinking for as long as there have been societies. They've been using drugs for as long as people have been in civilizations. And I think the sustainability of those practices is a lesson for us today. I think we have a weird attitude. I've only been writing about this for a while, but it struck me pretty quickly. We have a really weird attitude toward drugs in America. On the one hand, we'll throw them at people for medical purposes. So, you know, your six-year-old fidgets in class, so give them something like Ritalin to calm them down. Oh, you're feeling a little depressed. Here's some whatever the drug of choice is, I don't know what they're called these days, but, you know, Paxil or used to be 
what was the Prozac. one? Every, Prozac. Prozac. Right. Okay. There's the a SSRIs. But yeah. oh, you're 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 having a cocktail every night to relax. Oh, that's not good. Oh, you smoke marijuana. Oh, why would you do that? So we kind of have this censorious attitude toward drugs for pleasure or drugs for self-exploration and a completely, um, you know, non-critical attitude toward drugs for healthcare. It, it just makes no sense at all to me. And so, yeah, that's uh, it's a long answer to your question. I think the sustainability of drugs and alcohol for thousands of years tells us a lot more than the stupid drug wars we've had in this country for the past 50 years, which, you know, my favorite line about drugs that I've heard in the last few years is from Dr. Weil, the uh, wellness guru, who said, there's no such thing as bad drugs. There's only bad relationships with drugs. And I think that's a very useful way to to think about it. How can we cultivate healthy healthy relationships with the drugs that we find can benefit us and benefit others. And we talked about that um, a little uh, when you and I had breakfast about um, how we have all of these norms and, and how we judge if someone drinks two drinks a day, well, then that's okay. But if you drink, you know, five or six, that's not okay. And, um, how how is it that we've put all these norms in place and yeah are are they real are they fair uh we talked about two rick saying that you know at maps if you can get your mm. job done better when you're high then get high all we ask is you get your work done to the best of your ability and whatever that takes for you, we're open to it. And I think the interviewer said to him, well, you don't let people drink. And he's like, well, if that's a substance that helps someone do a better job, then we're okay with it. Um, wow, what a different way to approach uh, your employees and the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Two other examples, one that we take for granted, it's in Michael Pollan's newer book, which I just read recently. Uh, I think it's called This Is Your Mind on Plants. Plants. He, I'm reading that right it's now. It's really well done. And, you know, he points us to the coffee break. I mean, caffeine right. is a drug. Um, we consider it just like normal that your employer would say, oh, here, I'm going to give you a free drug and you can take your time to, to use it on company time whenever you want. Well, that's because they've learned that it actually helps people to focus or work longer hours or work a light night shift. And there's no reason to be judgmental about that, although we should be aware of what we're what we're doing. And the other example from this book, Drunk, is Google has a room or a, somewhere on its campus with very fine whiskey and the programmers when they get stuck with a problem can wander over there and have a couple of shots of whiskey on the theory that it can help them think a little more creatively or a little differently about a problem they're stuck with. And again, you know, I, in general, I'm not a fan of um, judgment of other people. I'm sort of a fan of letting people make their own choices and, uh, 
So, yeah, I think we have to try to rid ourselves of these norms or rules. Um, you know, in, in the sort of social circles I travel in, I'd say pre-pandemic, almost you'd almost never go to someone's house and be offered a cocktail. You know, would you like some wine or beer? We would like offer someone like a, would you like wine or beer or something harder? Or no one say, oh yeah, I'll take a gin and tonic. Maybe once in a while, but very rarely. Somehow, even we've we've drawn the line against hard liquor as being a problem drug, whereas beer and wine are not problem drugs. It's all very culturally shaped. And we'd all do well to try to shed some of those cultural rules and make our own decisions. For some people, no alcohol is the right choice. For some people, you know, I've written a lot lately about cigarettes and tobacco policy and e-cigarettes. For some people, e-cigarettes are a wonderful option because nicotine has some benefits and they're a lot healthier for you than combustible cigarettes. They're not going to kill you. And again, let's not bring a moral lens and decide what's bad and what's good. It's going to depend on the individual. Um, you know, with the one exception, again, I think this is true in, in the psychedelic arena as well. Um, I do think we, should, we need to have some both legal and moral rules about underage people using any of these substances. Yes, I agree. Um, they, they aren't their brains are not developed enough right. to make sensible choices as any right. of us who have had teenage children know very well. well we just um, attended this online event um, with Double Blind Magazine, um, and it was entitled How to Be a Psychedelic Activist. Um, and mm. it was featuring um, Melissa Lavansani from the Plant Medicine Coalition, who we featured on episode 27 of The Vine, by the way. <laughs> but uh, mm. it was inspiring to learn about the work that she did in D.C. to get uh, psilocybin on the ballot, uh, let alone getting the proposition passed. Um, and also to learn how expensive it really is to get these initiatives passed. Um, but um, what advice would you give to our listeners about how best you feel they could get involved in the psychedelic movement? And we know that you have written a book um, uh, in, in, that talks about um, compassionate capitalism in your book, Faith mm. and Fortune, and was wondering if you feel that there can be compassionate capitalism inside the psychedelic industry. Yeah, I listened to that. A webinar with Melissa yesterday as well. Elizabeth, I think, pointed me towards it. And the $700,000 figure that she said it cost to get a ballot initiative in DC passed was the headline for me. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. It's right. expensive business. It really is. Now, that was because it was a ballot initiative. And if you work with legislators and, uh, have the right legislators, elect the right legislators. It shouldn't be so expensive. But um, I don't know that I have advice on how people should get involved because I think it really depends on who they are and where they are, both geographically and in their life and all that. But um, I do think that an issue very broadly that has some bipartisan appeal in America, as well as a chance to, therefore has a chance to move forward, is drug reform generally. And that would be, you know, obviously, you know, legalization of marijuana, decriminalization of other drugs, more widely available psychedelic medicines, 
some form of availability of psychedelic drugs in other ways. And so when, and it's also to me, you know, if we want to go back a year, just about from now, when we were having all the racial justice protests, it's also to me a get, you know, getting rid of the drug war, ending the drug war, it might be the number one achievable thing we can do for racial justice in this country. Because again, there are a lot of Republicans out there who don't like a big government that locks people up for the things they put in their bodies. There are a lot of Democrats out there who see that there was a lot of racism in the way the drug war is enforced. And so if there is an issue that people want to get involved with, they can do it from the psychedelic thing, or they can get more involved with Drug Policy Alliance, which is the big national organization fighting for legalization of all drugs, including psychedelics. Um, I think it's a really promising issue for both individual activism and and for philanthropy as well, because it doesn't get you into the horrible you know, Democrats hate Republicans, Republican hate Democrats kind of politics we have around so many other issues. This is something that can bring people together. So Mark, going back to compassionate capitalism, um, you know, it takes money to get things to the masses. And so what does that look like? And you're right, there is a rub in the community, um, you know, that the big money, big pharma's coming in. I don't see how we do it without uh, some of that money and that research. Yeah, I I haven't done a lot of reporting on the startups. It seems like there's literally a new one almost every month. Um, I have talked to three or four of the founders of the startups. They all sound good, um, but all founders sound good when they're starting their companies and you have to, in the end, judge them by their actions, not by their promises. So I don't think the field can advance purely on a nonprofit model. I think almost all great progress we've seen around any kind of technology, whether it's, you know, electric cars or cell phones or Amazon or anything that we've used to improve our lives, much, much of it comes from investment and business. So what we need, I think, is to be skeptical and keep a close eye on all these businesses. We probably need some form of regulatory structure, although I really worry about that because regulation often stifles innovation as opposed to enabling it. So you know, I'd hate to see too much regulation of these companies, but they will have access to capital um, from people who are hoping to make money off this. And that's fine. And some of them will succeed if they have a good product. Some of them will fail if they don't. I, I've written a lot about business. I used to work at Fortune magazine and only in the last five years have, been, have I worked mostly writing about nonprofits. And I would say the feedback loops for business work. You make a crappy product, eventually people stop buying it and you go away. They don't work as well for nonprofits. You can run a crappy nonprofit for a long time before people figure it out. So I think it's going to have to be, we're going to have to be open to capitalism and there's no reason not to be open to capitalism. 
um, around these drugs. I understand the feeling of we don't want business to take things that indigenous um, cultures have developed for years, and we have to be careful about certain substances, peyote in particular. There's some good debate going on about protecting peyote for Native Americans and indigenous cultures. I'm 100% in favor of that, but I'm also 100% in favor of business jumping into this and moving it along faster than it's moving now. So how can our listeners, you know, read more of your articles that are coming out and find you online? Because I know you're going to have even more uh, to follow up on about all of this. So how can they find I you? I do. And I do want to write more. I haven't written a lot about psychedelics in the last few months. And I want to write a lot more in the next few months because I got obsessed for a while with other topics. But best thing to do is I'm on Twitter at my name, at Mark, Mark with a C, Gunther, and uh, I put a lot of my work on Medium, so you can subscribe to my writing there. Also, it's just Mark Gunther on Medium, and that would be a great help to me because the more people who subscribe and read, the more prominence the stories get, and then they, they circulate much better. So thanks for that opportunity for a commercial, Gina. Absolutely. Well, it's been our pleasure having you on our podcast, Mark. I mean, you're truly a remarkable person and we we love what you're doing and what you're writing and we learned so much from your articles. So thank you for your hard work and we'll be keeping in touch with you as we move forward and navigate through this new psychedelic movement. So thank you so much. Great. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Gina. Thanks, Elizabeth. Hope to see you both again before too long. Absolutely. We can't wait to see you again, Mark. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for another episode of The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to never miss an episode. For cannabis and psychedelic news, visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. And to support the plant medicine movement, purchase PMP merch from our new online store. Together, we can end the stigma around plant medicine. Mm-hmm.